to another episode of Pulp Buzz, a podcast featuring your favorite folks from across the Pulpverse. I'm Amanda of Broadcloth Studio, and I'm joined by Wendy, the weekend quilter. Hey. And our special guest, Laura of Laura Petrovich Cheney. Hello, how are you? So before we jump into all our wooden quilting fun today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Laura? Sure. Uh, I am an artist, a former fashion designer, and a teacher. It's a, a, a wife and a dog mom and a cat mom. <laughs> and you're, you're based outside of Boston, right? I am. I'm in Marblehead, Massachusetts, which is considered the North Shore of Massachusetts. Yes. You just mentioned that you're a dog mom. What kind of dog do you have? Oh, two little rescues. Uh, well, actually, not little. 60, 70 pound <laughs> rescues. <laughs> yeah. So how did you start making quilt-like constructions? Uh, it was a lifetime process. When I was a, a teenager, my mother and I went to an antique store, some kind of vintage store, and I had seen an enormous yellow quilt and I wanted it so badly but she refused to buy me somebody else's used blanket. And that's how she viewed quilts, which is to me a horrifying story. But anyhow, I, I wanted that quilt. And with, you know, a teenager's stubbornness, I decided, well, I'll show her. And I made one. I went to the fabric store, bought some fabric, bought a used sewing machine, taught myself how to quilt. The first one was a total disaster because I had no idea what a seam allowance was. So I sewed real close to the edge. I did not pre-wash. So, you know, when I did wash it, it basically fell apart. Um, I eventually gave it to the dogs. So that had started. And here I am, 17, on my way to college. I'm fashion, I'm figure drawing. I'm loving it. I know that I have this love for sewing. So I decided to go to graduate school at Drexel for a fashion degree. But realized that the the love of fashion did not manage with the business of fashion, and I just did not fit in that kind of corporate world. I'm I'm a different kind of creative person, and and this business like thing really was not for me. So then I went to teaching, and I taught for about fifteen years, and I was so envious of my students. I was giving them such a joyful time in the classroom, making and creating and painting. That in my mid forties, I decided. I want to create again. And I did not want to do painting. Um, even though I was drawing a lot in graduate school, I knew that after having visited the Venice Biennale and seeing all this amazing art, art installations and large sculptures and more experiential art, that I wanted to do something different. So like I said, I was drawing, but I was taking my drawings outside and doing things with the environment. And then it came time to display those paintings. And my professor said, we have to make stretches. You have to hang these on something. So he takes me to the wood shop. And oh, man, that was like death trap. It was the scariest place in the world because my dad said, you know, don't ever touch these machines. You can die. And here I am. I'm on one and I'm just about ready to pass out because they're so terrifying. And my professor's like, you've got to make your own stretchers. And I'm like, I can't stop shaking. 
And, you know, having that kind of fear is uh, horrible. And I wanted to overcome that. So I said, well, I want to do more woodworking. And it was just crazy idea to do more woodworking because of that fear. But anyhow, I did it. And my whole two years there was spent making um, wooden sculptures. And I collected the wood from nature. And on one of my walks, I found an orange and blue boat and hauled them back to my studio. Now, they had sat for a long time and I was working with wood that was natural wood, tree limbs, roots and stuff like that. And I picked up the boats because they were so unbelievably colorful. And about a month before graduation, one of my professors had said, like, we're so sorry you didn't do anything with fabric as a design, as a fashion designer. We thought you would be doing these incredibly wonderful fabric things. And I thought, oh, man, that would have been great to know months ago. But that seed had been planted. So when I left school, I kept thinking fabric, fabric, fabric. And I just had done a workshop with Faith Ringgold at the National Art Teachers Convention. So her quilts had come back into my imagination. So fabric and faith and just all this stuff was still playing in my head. And there I am at the grocery store. Um, and a magazine was there and I picked it up and it was something like with quilting. And so I thought, oh, fun. What's what's going on with this? And I opened it up to a turquoise and orange quilt. And I thought, oh, wow, this is so cool. The colors of that quilt were the colors of the boats that I had found. So I bought the magazine. I went home. I started hacking up those boats and laid them out on the floor like a quilt and thought, this is really fun. Fine. I finally found a vocabulary that fits me. Woodworking, fabric, textiles. It was just, it was a home run. So what was like the duration between like you picking up the magazine and picking up all the, um, the, that boat? Oh, uh, the boats have been in my studio for about a year and they just sat there. I collect a lot of things on my walks. So especially wood. So when you have a dog, you're always walking and you find great things, um, including one time $50, which was great. <gasps> wow! <laughs> but yeah, I know. Right. But it had been probably a year. So I found the boats. Um, they had sat in my studio for about a year. That conversation had been had. The workshop had happened that year. And the magazine was around Christmas you know, or Thanksgiving about this time mm -hmm. when the grocery store lines are extremely long. Um, and that's why I picked it up. So yeah, it's just one of those weird things that you, when you think about something and you ask the universe for help, you kind of find it. It may not happen suddenly, but it's just so amazing that these things happen, you know, or, or I liken it to when you buy a new car and it's a gray truck and all you see are gray trucks yeah. all over. And you're like, everyone has that. But that's what happens when you put out a wish to the universe. It answers it and you find it. And it's just so cool how that happens, that kind of serendipity. And um, how did you overcome your fear of power tools? Uh, just by doing it all the time. In fact, when I left, my graduate thesis was with a chainsaw. I really had conquered um, using a miter saw and a bandsaw very easily because I just <laughs> decided to power up with the most dangerous thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't want to be afraid and I don't like being afraid, you know? And so anytime I have hesitation, I want to work through that. And I'm glad that I did. 
So after that first um, orange and turquoise wood quilt, did you, like, was it immediate that you started making tons of wooden quilts or did, you know, did it continue to percolate over the years? It it continued to percolate because then I, I just had these two boats and I had more turquoise than I had orange. The orange was about a half of the boat and the turquoise was almost the whole boat. So then I made an all solid one um, in three inch squares because that was about my skill level there, just cutting squares and rectangles. Um, and then I started to want to find wood. So I found uh, a broken fence and brought the fence posts home. And then my husband prepares wood canoes and he went to go purchase a wood canoe at a barn that was getting demolished. So I took that barn wood home. And then I was really like seriously running out of wood. And I didn't want to purchase it because there's this kind of fun thing of trying to find wood that makes it also part of the process and the adventure of this. And this was at about January and I'd been making them all summer and I was having such a good time. And then every like this was October of 2012. And that's when Hurricane Sandy hit. And that's when I will never run out of wood. I mean, it was just amazing. You know, we ran out of power the night of Hurricane Sandy, and I'm trying to drive to find a cup of coffee. And there's a dresser in the road. There's, there's some trees in the road. There's a door. There's another dresser. And I'm like, I can't believe all this stuff. And I'm like, wait a minute. That's a red dresser. That's a green door. Why am, why am I not picking this up? This is, this is what I need. Like, and I come home and I'm like, to my husband, Pete, Pete, there's wood everywhere. And he's like, I know we just had a hurricane. I'm like, no, no, colored wood everywhere. <laughs> he's like, I can't believe you find this disaster. Uh, interesting that you can make it into your work. But I did lose my parents' house and my house had two trees on it. But the upside is I had a lot of material. And now I, I still have material from Sandy, but I often find still dresses on the side of the road. I know construction guys that alert me to demolitions. So, you know, it's a lot of good stuff that I find and I love repurposing it and giving it a new life. Can you, um, can you walk us through your design process? Like how you start, do you, do you pick a quilt pattern to work on or is it really based on what materials you have on hand? Uh, it's a little bit of both, but it's more of a process of what I'm going through in my head. And I think, you know, like I and the level of my skill set. So, for example, I had done a double wedding ring quilt and called it entanglement. And it had to do a lot with just, you know, we were repairing the house. We had moved to a new area. There was some personal stuff happening. And I just felt so entangled and enmeshed in a lot of stress. And so it's, it's taking what's happening inside to me and looking for a pattern that reflects my emotional state and working from that way. Um, so what do you think would surprise textile quilters about working with wood? Uh, I can't iron out my mistakes. Oh my gosh. I wish I could, <laughs> you know, like that's the worst because, you know, you could really squeeze those patterns. You could stretch it on the bias and make the, and especially the points for me, my points have to match as points. And that is such a challenge. Um, so that's probably the biggest surprise. And the other surprise is how the mechanics of the sewing machine and the bandsaw that I use are very similar. 
So a sewing machine works on two wheels and um, the, the needle goes up and down. Well, the bandsaw also works on two wheels and the saw blade goes in the middle and it actually has a throat. But the sewing machine adheres the two fabrics together with a stitch. And here I'm removing the pieces apart. And in that way, the coming together and the separating is what makes the patchwork. So that kind of process was so similar to me. And the, the physicality of the setup is almost the same in the bandsaw and the uh, sewing machine. So I think that's the biggest surprise is that the tools are so similar. And, and when you're laying out a, uh, a new quilt, do you audition where to put pieces? Like how does that, the actual physicality of that process look? Uh, it's, I wish I had a wall. I don't. Um, I know I, I love a felt wall <laughs> that I've even hearing all these little Velcro pieces and <laughs> I'd never get done. Um, I lay it out actually on my old fashion design table. The company that I'd worked for, which was a maternity company in Philadelphia called Mother's Work Maternity, had switched from the physical sawing of the fabric to a laser cutting. And the tables that they had um, could not deal with the laser cut. They had to switch them. So I have this weird particle board table that's at waist height. It's real high, four feet, and I have it by eight feet. And that's where I lay the artworks on. And sometimes I do mass cutting. Like today I was cutting 50 uh, little flower petals and other times it's block by block by block. So it's, it really depends on the pattern. You know, if it's a pattern block that repeats frequently and doesn't change, I can sort of mass produce them. But if it's a pattern piece where it's a log cabin and each log cabin is various the widths, like a six inch square, a 12 inch square, eight inch, they all have to be laid out individually as I go. So the process, so I like flipping them, one where I could mass cut and one that has to be kind of bespoke and hand done. And do you cut by project or do you cut well in advance for like, you know, I'll have a whole box of just rectangles and I can reach into that anytime that I need rectangles. No, I, even as a sewer, I couldn't do that, you know, cause it depends <laughs> on how I feel at that moment. Yeah. I have to be there in that piece. And let me tell you, I, the only thing I do cut a lot of are one inch strips on my table saw. Now the table saw is my least favorite one because it has a <laughs> tendency to pop up Yeah, and I have to have my husband there to help me guide it. So the two of, I like, that's the only one, the only machine that I really need assistance with is because the boards can be really big mm -hmm. and I want somebody else to check for magnets. Cause if there's a nail in there, I've got a big problem. So that I will pre-cut a whole bunch of. And if you could imagine just one inch strips or two inch strips of long eight foot boards. So those I'll do, we, we, we pull it out, off it goes all afternoon, just slicing away. And so that's the only thing I pre-cut. Yeah. So like with so. filters, you know, we've got tools where we can when it comes to cutting, we can sort of speed it up. So for example, mm -hmm. like uh, with quilters, we've got that stripology ruler where you can cut multiple squares and rectangles at a time. Um, mm -hmm. Are there sort of like any like 
quick ways in woodworking and cutting multiple pieces of wood at a time or it's just no, not, uh, it's one, one at a time <laughs> one at a time but i can sort of expedite mm-hmm. the process you know sort of um what is that what henry ford did you know oh i'm losing the word anyhow so for example the houses that i make a lot of i can cut a lot of one inch squares i can trace a whole bunch of triangles so i'm cutting triangles mm. i can so if the roof of the house is you know one and a three quarters inch by four inches long i can take a block of that and put that on a miter saw and just cut those shapes you know one say two inches by four inches mm. so i can draw those out and cut those very rapidly and then have a stack of those trace them and then hand cut them all. That's the like a production line. Yeah. That's the best way I can make the production line is <laughs> cut them smaller and then hand cut each one. So when you're looking for materials, uh, you mentioned earlier that, you know, um, dressers and dra- doors that were, you know, different colors definitely catch your eye. Are there other like, you know, what makes you pick, pick up a piece of salvage wood to bring home to the studio? Primarily the size and the color. Um, but I've also found a whole bunch of things that I've incorporated. I found rulers. Um, I found a Captain America toy, oh and he's going to go on one of the pieces. That sounds like so um, much fun. I did. <laughs> I mean, anything I find goes in there. I painted signs. You know, there was a lot of houses for sale. And the for sale houses sometimes can blow away or fall down in a nor'easter, I've picked those up because I love the writing. And, you know, when you cut the text up, it makes such a cool pattern. Yeah. And people in your head try to put it together. Like, what was that word? You know, um, <laughs> a church sign fell down. So I have Holy Eucharist at, you know, and the hours of the mass. And <laughs> cutting that up. <laughs> Like, so it's so great. And I know people are going to be like, what did, what word was that? Yeah. Like what's you know? the, like the strangest thing that you found? Oh boy. A fruit box from Puerto Rico that was Ooh. not wood, but it was this pressed cardboard and it had the Spanish lettering and it was hot pink and like bright green and it had all this fruit on it I, oh it was the best it was the best oh gosh, i still have so like one piece of it it really was because it's like neon pink and the spanish lettering was just great and the little pictures of the fruit were so much fun oh my gosh but i've also have picked up um you know toy blocks uh rulers painted dressers uh, police barricades. I have a department of public works and it, it, I was doing my civic duty when I picked it up because it was broken and I didn't want anyone to run over it. So I was helping the community and I brought that home. And do you ever, you never paint any of the wood or anything like that. You, you use it as is. I use it as is. I really do. And it's just, I often think about painting it, but I just can't bring myself to it. It feel, it would feel like a betrayal. Um, but I have thought of long and hard about it because I really am missing some colors like orange is such a hard color to find. And I just have to focus in on finding it when I need it. So because it happens, I really wanted something red. And sure enough, there was this incredibly red lacquer um, dresser that was cracked in the back, put out on bulk trash pickup. And it was mine. 
So um, your work highlights the need to address climate change. Can you speak more about this? Uh, yeah, this is a serious topic. Like I said earlier, most of my wood was collected from Hurricane Sandy mm. and I'd lived through it. And, you know, I don't I'm not a scientist and I'm not an activist, but I did live through a, a major climate disaster. And I think at some point we all will. And it's the human story that needs to be told. How do we pick up the pieces when we've lost everything? And what I mean by everything, you know, our homes, childhood photographs, um, things that you never thought you would value, but, but, you, but you do when they're gone because they hold some kind of memory for you and they hold a family history. And, you know, the more I see these disasters and not just hurricanes, but fires, um, earthquakes, uh, even political displacement, you know, when you have to pick everything in a bag and, and leave, mm. it, it makes you so sad because we identify who we are and our history with place and with certain things. And when that is gone, you really begin to learn more about who you are and ask those bigger questions and questions like, do we rebuild here? If we know it could, if we knew that the shore is going to be hit again, or the coastline is going to be hit again, do we rebuild? Do we move in further? And who pays for these things? How many times are we going to spend billions and billions of dollars to repair these homes when these storms happen again? And they get bigger and they get wider and more uh, violent. And it's, again, you know, the, the tornadoes in the Midwest, the fires, the floods. And how do we live with this? You know, what is the human toll of these storms on, on individuals? And you hear this often, you know, after months of the storm, the stress of that displacement takes such a toll on people. And these are the unwritten stories that happen with climate change that never really seem to get addressed because the news stories have moved on. But there are people that are just, they've changed, you know, and they've changed not by choice, but by circumstance. And it's going to happen to all of us at some point. And how do we cope with that? And I guess that's what I try to address in my work. For people encountering your work for the first time, you know, what would you want them to walk away thinking about? Not so much questions, but the idea that after living through a disaster, that there's still hope and resiliency that's there in the work. Like, okay, so this is no longer a dresser. What is it? You know, it's, it's a quilt. And the reason why I think quilts do so well with this topic is that they are carriers of comfort. They are carriers of stories. They've been made by women for, you know, years and years and mostly anonymous women that have made them out of necessity. But even out of necessity, they found beauty in selecting the patterns and the colors that they did. And so keeping that tradition. And again, the resiliency is really important that you can't succumb to this kind of deep, deep sorrow and loss that occurs, that you have to find a new way, a, a transition of a new way of being as an individual, but also for the material, sort of like the material is a stand-in. 
that I may no longer be a dresser, but hey, I can be a can be a square in a log cabin. So you exhibit your work at museums, gallery shows, and art fairs. Do you have any upcoming exhibitions on the horizon that you're able to share with our listeners? Oh, I do. I oh. have a I have a big exhibit at Boston Museum, but I can't really advertise it until it's hung. But just look for some interest in March. It'll be very exciting. That's the big one. And then I have two summer shows, one in um, upstate New York, right outside New York in Beacon. Um, It's called the Garage Gallery. And I'm exhibiting at a senior home um, because I thought it was really important for me to bring art to people that are in those communities that have apartments and need assisted living, because I think they should also have art. And I'm really looking forward to exhibiting my work there. Um, and that will happen this summer. So I have two big um, shows and then a really big show in March. So I'm pretty excited. That's and I just got exciting. done the uh, the other art fair, which is my first time kind of being my own gallery person, which is really <laughs> a fun and weird experience. And I do have a gallery in Provincetown, Massachusetts, oh. in P-Town. And was the, the other art fair, was that the one here in New York City? Yeah, in Brooklyn. Oh, and how was, yeah. you said it was a weird experience being your own mini gallery? Oh, to talk about my work and not talk about it like this as an intellectual endeavor, but as a product to be bought and sold. And I, and I know that they are, and I know that's why you have gallerists and they're mm. really good at that job. And now I know why they take 50% of my work because it's so hard <laughs> yeah. to talk about and to hear that. I'm like, Ooh, you're talking to see if it's going to fit over your sofa. No, this is a work of art. And, you know, that was so hard to to remove myself from that. I don't know if I liked that. But it, at the same time, it was such good feedback from people, to from the general public that, you know, is not accustomed to this kind of, uh, you know, rigor of, of talking about why people quill and what matters and all this good human stuff yeah. that happens when we make works of art, you know? And it was just, it was weird in that respect. That's, that's a skill set. That is, it is a skill yeah, set. One yeah. that, you know, I don't have at the moment though, <laughs> but it was so good to learn it. Yeah. yeah. On that note, it is time to move on to our rapid fire quilty questions. Are you ready, Laura? I am. Okay. Wendy, why don't you kick us off? Okay. So what is your favorite time of day to make? 10 o'clock in the morning after I've been to the gym and walked the dogs. And music, Netflix, podcasts, or the sounds of silence in the background? You know, I thought about this question for a long time, a little bit, all of them. It really depends on what's happening. Complicated work needs absolute silence. When I'm rocking it out, it's Led Zeppelin. And do you have like a current favorite, like maybe podcast or something that you're watching at the moment? Uh, I just finished listening to Death of an Artist, which was really great about um, Anna Mendieta. Highly recommend that for everybody to take listen to that. And do you have a favorite snack while woodworking? No, <laughs> just water. <laughs> I use a two-part resin on the work and it would be pretty terrible. I'd be like stuck to my M&Ms or something, but no, just water. I was like, you probably don't want to eat sawdust. <laughs> no. 
No. I hear all about the great things on your podcast. I'm like jelly beans, crackers. I'm like, oh, I wish. Yeah, Just like, water. It's hardcore trap. in there. <laughs> and do you have a favorite traditional quote block? The log cabin, my first one that I made. I'm still in love with it. And what's your favorite color? Pink and orange. And what color would you use the most? Surprisingly, turquoise. And how do you organize your wood scraps? First by size, then by color when I get to a certain size, and then when I get really small, by size again. (laughs) And what happens to the bits of wood that are too small to use in a project? Never too small to use in a project. They get stored again and again and again (laughs) (laughs) until they're dust. (laughs) That's some goals for uh, my scrapping. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I made little tiny sculptures out of them. I'm not kidding. I had like a quarter of an inch triangle that I glued onto sculptures and I stacked them. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Yeah, they never go to waste. What is the biggest piece of artwork you've made? Five feet by five feet. Actually, that was one singular piece was five feet by five feet. I have made uh, quilt blocks that went 80 feet long, but that they were pieces like uh, they were 40 pieces. So Mm. one piece was only five feet because and that's determined by the size of the, the backing. Interesting. And where can we purchase your work from? Uh, my gallery, Ray Wiggs Gallery in Provincetown, Massachusetts, or on my website, laurachaney.com. And do you ship internationally? I have. I've shipped to the Netherlands and Canada and Finland. Nice. And in England. In England. Cool. And what's your favorite tool in your studio? My bandsaw. So I think we know the answer to this, but uh, pick one, HST's Log Cabin or Sawtooth Star? Log Cabin. And what's your favorite part of the creative process? Uh, I I think when you get into that rhythm, uh, you know, when you're cutting and imagining what it can be and the early assemblage, the possibility, that space that possibility is just born. I love that. And what's your least favorite part? Sanding the edges from the glue because it's over. You know, the pieces getting sand, the glue bubbles that happen at the end, they have to get sanded off and that's the end. And what's your favorite recent to make? The last one that I always did, I'm always in love with the one that just got finished. And then once I've made the next one, it's like, ah. (laughs) <laughs> the new favorite. it's so weird it, it's been like that for 10 years they all, everyone says well do you have a favorite i'm like yeah the one that's just done i'm not gonna sell it just yet you know and then i finished the next one i'm like ah send it along <laughs> it's so weird i think a lot of people feel that way yeah you know the newest baby yeah and how many works are in your whip pile uh three and where do you store your work in progresses on my table or on uh, various other tables in my studio. And when you're not in your studio, do you have any uh, hobbies or interests? Uh, I love to exercise. I have two dogs um, and cooking. Okay. So we've just got one more question for you. 
Who are the three accounts you think everyone should be following and why? Oh, this was so hard because <laughs> there were so many wonderful quilters, but I narrowed, I did narrow it down to three. First, Bisa Butler. I'm sure we all know who she is. Mm-hmm. And the reason why you should follow her is because her narrative is so important. She's telling the story of African-Americans um, and their history. But she also crosses the fine art world and the quilting world. And she's a New Jersey girl like me. So the second one is uh, Roderick Kirikoff, whose book, Unconventional, Unexpected, American Quilts Below the Radar, is an amazing book. And his Instagram um, has a lot of quilts from there. And they're just great because they're mostly made by unknown makers with unusual material, um, a mobile gasoline flag on the back polyester, corduroy, and they're so interesting. And talk about being made for the love of making quilts. I would highly recommend his Instagram for that. And last but not least, um, as quilters, we all are in business of quilting. And I know nothing about spreadsheets. I know nothing about organizing all this stuff. So I follow Allison Stanfield, who kind of guides me through the business of the art world. So I would highly recommend for every quilter who's interested in having contacts and a mailing list to find a business person, a business mentor and and follow them. So they're the three. So we need to wrap today up and we hope that you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to contact any of us, we can most easily be found on our Instagram accounts. I'm at Broadcloth Studio. Wendy. I'm at the.weekendquilter. And Laura. Laura Petrovich Cheney. Or you can go to our podcast account at quilt.buzz or our website, quiltbuzzpodcast.com for our previous episodes and updates on upcoming guests. If you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you subscribe to the podcast and tell your quilty friends about us too. And if you have a moment to share what you love by writing a review on your podcast provider of choice, it would make our day. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye. 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 Bye.